Our session this evening is entitled, Why Do You Doubt? Why do you doubt? When we talk about the Christian mind, there are all kinds of topics that immediately come to mind when we raise the topic of thinking, of Christian thought, and one of those topics that must be dealt with in this discussion, in this series, is the topic of doubt. Now, two weeks ago, or yeah, two weeks ago, we looked at the topic of truth. What is truth? And we define truth as that which corresponds to reality. Truth is that which corresponds to the way things really are. That's the truth. Of course, it's under attack today in dramatic fashion, but that's the truth. Then last Wednesday night, we looked at a related topic, and that's the topic of authority. We can affirm that the truth is that which corresponds to reality, but who determines what reality is? And as we looked at that topic, we, we focused on God as the ultimate authority, and we studied that great battle that marks human history, the battle over authority, how unsaved man seeks to put the authority in his own hands, looking to things like his own reason, looking to things like his own sensory perception, looking to things like his own intuition. Tonight, we're going to look at the topic of doubt. Even if we have defined truth as that which corresponds to reality, as determined by God, it immediately raises the question, well, how do I know? How do I know? How... Can I be certain in that? Can I have certainty? Is there any role for certainty in my life? Or is my life consigned forever in this life here on earth to doubting? How do I look at doubt? Well, to begin with, why don't we look and define that term? What do we mean when we use the term doubt? What does doubt refer to? Well, a standard dictionary definition would be this. Doubt means to be uncertain about something. You fill in the blank. Doubt means to be uncertain about something. To believe that that something may not be true or is unlikely. That's what it means to doubt. Merriam-Webster goes on to say this. To doubt means to have no confidence in someone or something. We could take all of that and boil it down to one very simple statement. What is doubt? Doubt is the absence of certainty. That's what doubt is. And when we put it in these dictionary definition terms, it it, it certainly can sound somewhat philosophical, but all of us in this room know what doubt is. We are seasoned skeptics. We may not be able to define this term in all of its fancy philosophical jargon, but we know what doubt is. We were born with it. It is a characteristic of the flesh. It is a characteristic of living in this fallen world. But we think now, how does doubt affect the Christian mind? How is doubt related to the process of thinking Christianly? Does doubt have any role? 
Well, in that area too, we would all say, well, I've been a Christian for however many years and still there are doubts. When does that go away? How do I view those doubts? Are they good? Are they helpful? Are they beneficial? Or are they harmful? The reality of it is, is that there are always doubts along the way. How do we relate to them? Attesting to this reality, John Calvin in his Institutes noted this. He said this, quote, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. We could look to someone like Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was certainly someone who was frank about the struggles that he faced, especially in his later years, the downgrade controversy and so on. And Spurgeon is known for his confessions of struggles, of doubts. In one sermon entitled, The Glorious Right Hand of the Lord, he wrote this, or preached this, I must confess here with sorrow that I have seasons of despondency and depression of spirit, which I trust none of you are called to suffer, and at such times I have doubted my interest in Christ, my calling, my election my perseverance, my Savior's blood, and my Father's love. The fact is, the children of God do doubt and fear, I am sorry to say. But when we doubt, it is sin. Oh, cursed sin of unbelief, he continues. Most damnable of sins. Because it, is, it so stains God's honor and so makes the enemy to blaspheme. There, say they, there is a man who cannot trust his God, a minister who cannot trust his God, a Christian that cannot repose upon the promise of the Almighty, end quote. Now, of course, Spurgeon in this sermon went on to deal with that doubt and prescribe the means to to respond to that doubt, but he acknowledges what many Christians can testify to the fact that there are doubts. There are doubts. Spurgeon looked on doubt with disdain. He even wrote a a sermon called The Minister's Fainting Fits in which he details some of these doubts and uncertainties as he had experienced them in the ministry. Others, of course, do not look on doubt with such loathing. In fact, today, it is quite common to hear even Christians and even Christian pastors at that glorifying in doubt. In fact, it is really a central tenet of uh, the spirit of our age, our postmodern world, to be exceedingly skeptical. It is considered to be the highest level of humility to doubt everything, to believe nothing. Now, of course, when the proponents of that kind of idea say that, that isn't quite consistent. The reality of it is, is that while they doubt everything and put on this false humility of skepticism, 
at the same time, they trust in themselves like no other generation. If you look at the postmoderns today and how they look at their feelings and their intuition, this is a generation that is certain in its own self-righteousness, certain in its own self-virtue, certain in its own self-sufficiency. But as I said, this makes it even into the church and among some church leaders. One, a a leader in the uh, emergent church movement, a pastor, writer, author by the name of Brian McLaren, wrote a book called Faith After Doubt. And on one of the pages, he shows his love for doubt in this way. And notice how he describes it. He says this, quote, Doubt need not be the death of faith. It can be instead the birth of a new kind of faith. A faith beyond beliefs. A faith that expresses itself in love. A deepening and expanding faith that can save your life and save the world. End quote. Well there, if you read carefully, you see that what Brian McLaren is doing is detaching faith apart from any objective external reality. It's not based on beliefs for McLaren. It's based on self. And all McLaren is doing is locating the authority, the justification for belief from external reality, namely the revelation of God into his own hands, into his own heart. So how do we understand doubt? How are we to look on it? How are we to deal with it? Well, a correct understanding of doubt cannot be forged on the anvil of human experience. We have to realize that our personal experience as doubters has spawned all kinds of assumptions and self-justifications for our doubt. So it would be foolish for us to define doubt to describe doubt by looking at how we experience it. If we go back in history of mankind and look to the very first temptation, it involved doubt. Genesis 3 verse 1. The serpent comes to Eve. And, and, and what does the serpent say? What are the first words out of the serpent's mouth? Has God really said Now, Eve took the bait and plunged, together with Adam, plunged the human race into a race of skeptics, a race of doubters. And from our birth, we are born doubters. We are born to doubt and resist the Word of God. So for us to define doubt, for us to to understand the anatomy of doubt, we would be foolish to look to ourselves and our own experience. Instead, a correct understanding of doubt must be developed from the bedrock foundation of God's Word. And it's important to note that when we look at the concept of doubt in the Bible, as we will particularly look at the New Testament, we find a predominantly negative view of doubt. But it's not exclusively negative. And there, as we will see, 
there is a place for doubt in the right way, focused on the right target and expressed in the right manner. But as I said, a, a, the dominant view of Scripture is that faith is not served, faith is not helped, faith is in no way benefited from doubt. So let's look at that first. When we look at the Bible's teaching and we survey what it has to say about the concept of doubt, the first thing and the predominant lesson that we glean is this, doubt is a foe of faith. Doubt is the foe of faith. Now, I want to read some texts to you that, that, that support this, and I want you to think as, as we go through these texts of similar observations in, in the different texts that I read that communicate this very important truth, that doubt, in many cases, is the foe to faith. First of all, Matthew chapter 14, verses 28 to 33, we know this this pericope very well. This is where Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. And the narrative goes as follows. Peter said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Another important text, and we're not going to read all of them, another important text is found in Romans. Romans chapter 4. You know that section of of Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are so important as it relates to a definition of faith as Paul gives this powerful exposition of of faith and, and what it really is. And he gets to this key point here in his argument, verses 18 to 22 of chapter 4, and he deals with the concept of faith, of unbelief, and of doubt. Notice what he says referring to Abraham. In hope against hope, Abraham believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, that is the promise of an offspring, Abraham did not waver. Abraham literally did not doubt in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Another important text is found in the letter of James, James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Here James writes this, But if any of you lacks wisdom... 
Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Another text, and this one is one of the more famous ones as it relates to doubt. In fact, it's from this text that we get the, the, the title, Doubting Thomas. John chapter 20, and we'll pick it up in verse 25, but leading up to that verse, we read that Jesus had appeared to the disciples after his resurrection and Jesus had appeared to them when Thomas was missing. Now, it's, it's an interesting question to ask why Thomas was not part of the, uh, the rest of the eleven. Why Thomas was missing. But he was, probably as, as, a, as a, an evidence of his lack of faith. And we pick this up in verse 25 as John writes this. So the other disciples were saying to, to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. And see my hands, and reach here with your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Thomas is the classic empiricist. He will not believe on the basis of the apostolic witness. He must prove it. He must validate it by his own senses. He must touch the nail-scarred hands. He must touch the side that had been pierced by the sword. Now, in the compassion of Jesus, Jesus appears to him and invites him to do just that. But what is amazing here to consider is that John never records that Thomas ever had to do that. The mere voice of Jesus was enough to drive Thomas to his knees in an act of ultimate worship. Now, there are other texts that we could look at along these lines. Some of them I have put in your notes. You can look at them on your own. But when we look at these texts and how they deal with with doubt, with disbelief, with uncertainty we can put together several summary observations about how doubt is indeed a foe to faith. It is not a friend. It will not benefit you in these ways. When expressed as we have read here in these texts, it is your enemy and you must treat it as such. Well, what observations do we gather from these texts that I just read? Well, first of all, And this is comforting. It is important to note that doubt is a common experience even among those who are closest to Jesus. Peter, 
Thomas. These were part of the 11 disciples who spent three years with Jesus, and yet they too struggled with these things. However, as common of an experience that that doubt is, it is important to note that these texts that we just read, whether from Matthew or John or James or Romans, these texts show that doubt as a response to God's word, doubt as a response to God's character, his ability is defined as the antithesis to faith. It is the exact opposite. We cannot approach this kind of doubt with neutrality, with ambivalence. The Bible is clear that if the object of the doubt is the word of God, if the object of the doubt is the power of God, if the object of the doubt is the character and ability of God to fulfill his promises, that is the enemy. That is the exact opposite of true saving faith. And why? Well, we saw it in those texts. Such doubt that casts uncertainty and even dispersion on God's word, his character, and his ability to fulfill his promises, such doubt sets man's senses It sets man's reason. It sets man's intuition in direct opposition to the authority of divine revelation. God has said, it is so, and man comes along by his reason, or man comes along by his senses, or man comes along by his intuition and says, it is not so. Or, I cannot know that it is so. It is not clear enough. It is not certain to me. And in that kind of doubting, man sets himself up as the authority. In that kind of of doubting, we see this incipient rebellion. That even though God, the one and true God, has said it to be so, I will not yet believe it. I cannot yet see it. I cannot yet touch it. I need something other than God and his word to justify my full affirmation of what God has said. And such doubt looks for justification outside of God. It looks for it in human experience. It convinces itself that if I just have an experience, then I will believe. If, it, if I just have an angel come to me, then I will believe. If, if there's just some kind of miracle, then I will believe. But on the basis of God's word alone, I, I, I'm not ready, I can't, there's not enough authority. That kind of doubt is an enemy not only to faith, it's an enemy to God's people, it's an enemy to God himself. John Frame, in describing this, writes this, quote, The Bible presents doubt largely in negative terms. It is a spiritual impediment, an obstacle to doing God's work. In Matthew 14, verse 31, and Romans 14, verse 23, it is the opposite of faith and therefore is a sin. Of course, this sin, like other sins, may remain with us through our earthly lives, but we should not be complacent about it. Just as the ideal for the Christian life is 
perfect holiness, the ideal for the Christian mind is absolute certainty about God's revelation. End quote. That is what we are called to. That is the inevitable direction of biblical faith. Absolute certainty in what God has said. The refusal to try to find any kind of other external authority that we use to verify God's word. You see, the moment we seek that other external authority, whether it is a a miracle or whether it is some kind of sensory perception, whether it is some kind of dream at night, whether it is some kind of, uh, of, of intuition, we have then placed whatever that is above God's word as being more sure, as being more clear, more believable, and therefore more authoritative. And when you realize that, you realize just how blasphemous that is. That kind of doubt is an enemy to your faith. That kind of doubt requires your immediate attention. You cannot be complacent, as John Frame says. You must mortify it. Well, is that all doubt? Is there any kind of other doubt? And there is. Let's look at now a second category. And the second category doesn't always use the exact terminology, but it communicates an important lesson about a positive kind of doubt. So we're going to entitle this, uh, this kind of doubt, doubt as the servant of faith. This is the kind of doubt that is actually helpful. It's the kind of doubt that will, that will prompt and propel your faith in the right direction. What kind of doubt is it? It is a doubt that is aimed at a particular target, but this target is not the reliability of God and his promises. It's not the trustworthiness of God's scripture. Here the object of the doubt is self. Here the object of the doubt is self. This is what is considered to be something that lacks certainty. And when we have this kind of doubt, we can see rather quickly how this will serve and benefit our faith. Let's look at some texts that communicate this kind of healthy skepticism. We know this one, Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 7, says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. There we have it. Do not take certainty in your own understanding. Do not look at your own understanding uncritically. Doubt your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him that is the Lord, Yahweh, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Put ultimate authority in him and and turn away from evil. That's what Solomon says. And in that, you have the essence of biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is a a, a critical kind of reasoning, but it is not a critical kind of reasoning that approaches God and his word with skepticism. It is a critical kind of reasoning that approaches self with skepticism. That does not believe automatically everything that self says. It's like David in the Psalms. 
having to preach to himself, why are you downcast, O my soul? You see, if we don't have this kind of doubt, if we don't have this kind of skepticism, we listen to ourselves, we listen to our souls, when our souls tell us lies, misinformation. When, it, when, when our thoughts, our internal thoughts are not right, we have those feelings, that intuition. Things like self-pity. Wrong understandings of the circumstances around us. Oh, the world is coming down on me. Everyone hates me, etc., etc. Those are lies that men will often believe, and they believe it because they don't have doubt. They believe it because they trust themselves. They have placed certainty in their own feelings. They have placed certainty in their own emotions, their intuition, even in their own reasoning. In fact, I would say this, that we see it in the society at large. This is what we call a postmodern generation. And it is particularly true of younger men that they are driven with this strange certainty. They are driven by their feelings. They're driven by their gut. They've bought into the Disney motto, Trust your heart. They bought into it. And they make decision after decision after decision based solely on certainty that they have placed in themselves. They lack the kind of doubt that is a servant to faith. Proverbs says, do not lean on your own understanding. Romans chapter 12 verse 16 says this, Do not be haughty in mind. But associate with the lowly. And then notice this command. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be certain. Do not give your own estimation a place of authority. Approach it with skepticism. Approach it with a healthy dose of doubt. You cannot trust your internal intuition. James chapter 4 verses 13 to 17. Here James reminds us of a very important kind of of doubt that we are to have. It's the doubt that's associated with boasting. Boasting about our own ability to make things happen by the pure power of our determination. James says this, Come now, you who say, tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Here again we see that this unquestioning confidence in self is what the biblical writer here, James, calls boasting. This elevated perspective, this elevated assessment of one's own abilities. Now understand this, that that this kind of pride very much exists, like I said, in in, an unsaved man, but it also exists even in the saved man as he, he deals with his flesh. And here's the irony. 
so many people who say they struggle with doubt, they struggle with understanding whether God is real, whether the gospel is real, whether the Bible is true and trustworthy, will at the same time put all of their, all of their certainty in their own ability. They will boast in their own ability while at the same time doubting the ability of God. The scripture writer The scripture writers call us to vacate such certainty and to replace it with critical discernment. We have a wonderful example of this in Job 42. You know the entire narrative of Job and what he all went through and and the struggles that he had in, in trying to make sense of the circumstances around him and why this would happen to him. And he, in all his, his effort, puts God in the dock. And he wants to question God. And then at the end, God appears to him. And in the closing chapter, we read this, where Job comes to that realization that all the certainty that he had placed in himself was vain. We read this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he quotes God himself, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak, I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Job had placed a level of certainty in his own ability to interpret his circumstances. And God humbled him and he repented. Psalm 139 verses 23 to 24. Here the psalmist expresses this This. This doubt about his own ability to properly assess his own soul. And he says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. The psalmist did not place certainty in his own self. And you could even look at the New Testament example of this second Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul even says to the Corinthians, test yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Paul called upon the Corinthians to examine themselves, not just to, to, to look upon themselves with this automatic certainty and say, well, I made a profession, I'm here in the church, therefore I'm saved. Paul says, no, critically examine your own life. Do not approach yourself with certainty. So when we look at these texts, we also come to several observations here as well. First of all, it's this, doubt is beneficial to us. It is beneficial to us when it reflects a lack of certainty in oneself. When it, re- when it reflects an awareness of inadequacy in self, an awareness of insufficiency in self, an awareness of fallibility. When it does not just automatically treat itself 
as true and infallible and right. To the contrary, it sees itself as inadequate, insufficient, and fallible. And again, this is the exact opposite of the kind of doubt that is a foe to faith. Because the kind of doubt that is a foe to faith, the dangerous kind of doubt, the sinful kind of doubt, says that God is fallible, says that God may be inadequate, says that God is somehow insufficient. And that is a foe. But when we see that insufficiency, that inadequacy, that fallibility in our own selves, and we cry out like Paul did in Romans chapter 3 verse 4, let God be found true and every man a liar. When it's that kind of doubt, that's a benefit. And why is it a benefit? Because it's that kind of doubt that propels the doubter in the right direction. This kind of doubt is a virtue. It propels the doubter in the right direction because it propels him to a greater search for truth outside of himself. An acknowledgement that looking inward is not the solution to my problems. Even, even in those moments of of great despair over the lack of assurance in in my life. You might say, I I just doubt my salvation. Well, the solution is not to look inward even more. The solution is always to have that doubt propel you to something outside of yourself. And when that doubt in yourself serves you in that way, it makes you desperate for the truth. It makes you desperate to know. And it points you to the Savior, that is a doubt that's a servant of faith. Again, John Frame writes this, quote, We should not conclude, however, that doubt is always sinful. To doubt what God has clearly spoken to us is wrong, but in other cases, in fact, it is wrong for us to claim knowledge, much less certainty. Indeed, often the best course is to admit our ignorance. This is where we get to those points where we just put our hand over our mouths and we say, let God be true. I don't know how to understand all these circumstances. I don't know how to understand myself, but this I know. God is true. His gospel is pure. He will not fail. There is another kind of doubt that the scripture discusses, another category. The first category was that there is a a doubt that's a foe, an enemy, it is sin. There is that second category which sees doubt as a servant that propels the doubter to, to seek truth outside of himself in God, the God of truth. But there's a third kind of doubt, and it's the kind of doubt that I would say is the champion of faith. In in a way, you could say this kind of doubt is the vibrant expression of faith. The vibrant expression of faith. And you might say, well, what do you mean by that? How can can doubt be, be connected with a champion? How can doubt be connected with a vibrant expression of faith? Well, here is how it does that. Not only are we to refuse putting 
certainty in our own flesh. We are called upon to scrutinize all that is less than God's word. We are called upon to scrutinize all that is less than, lower than, outside of God and His word. Any claim to truth that we hear, any proposed narrative about what the world is like, what reality is, any assertion about what is right or what is wrong, any assertion about what is beautiful and dignified and what is not, all of this must be scrutinized by the Christian mind. All of this, all of these claims to truth, all of these narratives, every Every proposition that is, that is sent our way must be scrutinized by the Christian mind, by what we can call sanctified critical judgment. Such judgment views all of life, all of human communications, all assertions, all narratives, all philosophies, all teachings. This kind of judgment views all of that through the lens of God's word. It holds it up to the standard of God's word, presupposing that standard to be authoritative truth. And so it is this kind of critical judgment, this kind of discernment, that really expresses the lordship of Christ in all things. Because we make the confession, Jesus is Lord It means that everything else must be measured by him. We approach nothing in this world as neutral. Every square inch is under his lordship. Sundays are under his lordship just as much as Mondays through Saturdays. The sacred and the secular, all of it is under his lordship. And so we must approach everything that we encounter With that critical eye, does this measure up? There is no place for automatic belief. We we cannot dare just take the world at its word. We must apply critical judgment. We call this discernment. And when we do, this is a vibrant expression of faith. Consider 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 5, Paul writes this, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You cannot do that without critical reasoning. You cannot do that just by believing everything people tell you. No, this requires a a distinctly Christian mind. A mind that looks at everything and measures everything according to the standard of God's word. It presupposes at the very beginning that this needs discernment. This needs careful analysis. I cannot believe it at face value until I measure it according to God's word. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. Paul writes to the Colossians, a church that he had not planted one of his disciples did. He writes to this church upon receiving a message that this church was being inundated with all kinds of threats from outside. There were threats from the Jewish community seeking to bring in legal mosaic law issues into the worship of the church. There were threats from 
the, the, the superstitious pagan element of the culture which sought to, to, to syncretize the religions of, of the world with the church. And then, of course, there was the threat of Greek philosophy. And Paul writes this, again, calling upon the Colossians to exercise doubt, to exercise critical judgment. And he writes in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Understand this, if you don't have a critical approach to the narratives in the world today, to what is being piped to us through media, through all kinds of forms of communication, if we don't have a critical doubting mindset, we will be taken captive. 1 John 4 verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. We could look at other texts, but these alone help us to form this kind of observation about the role of doubt. It is this, scrutiny, scrutiny, judgment, discernment, is the necessary first response that we must have if we are to think Christianly. It's the first response we must have to any human assertion about any kind of transcendent thing, about what's right and wrong, beautiful and ugly, true and false, reality and illusion. And God has given us this standard. He has given it to us in this book to use as the prism, to use as the comparison. And by by using the minds that God has also given us through regeneration, we must discern. R.C. Sproul says this, doubt can appear as a servant of truth. Indeed, it is the champion of truth when it wields its sword against what is properly dubious. It is a citadel against credulity. Authentic doubt has the power to sort out and clarify the difference between the certain and the uncertain, the genuine and the spurious. So in this sense, We, as we echo uh, Sproul's words here, doubt is essential. It is essential. Now, all of that said, I want to summarize this before we talk about some practical implications. I want to give you four questions here that can help you discern what kind of doubt you are facing. Is it a foe or is it a friend? Is it beneficial Or is it harmful? Let me give you these four questions. Number one, consider the object of doubt. What is it that is doubted? We all have doubts. We must. And so you ask the question, is this doubt right? Ask, what is the object? What is being doubted? And let's remember this. If what is being doubted is God's word, if what is being doubted is God's ability, his promise, It is sinful. Number two, consider its direction. Toward what is it moving? What is that doubt doing in your life? It is a servant if this doubt is propelling you to search for truth. It is is a benefit 
it is helpful to you, if it is lighting the fires of hunger and you see yourself searching in Scripture for answers more and more, looking to God for truth, praying more, in that case, that doubt has propelled you in the right direction. Consider doubt's direction. Number three, consider its foundation. Upon what authority is that doubt resting or operating? Upon what authority is that doubt is that doubt a doubt that is operating on the, on the authority of your own senses and, and, and treating your intuition as the ultimate authority and, and putting under its judgment the word of God? Or, or is this kind of doubt operating as it takes the truth of God's word and applies it to your life and, and, and removing the certainty and self-sufficiency that you had in your life? Upon what authority is it operating? And then number four... What is the motivation of this doubt? Consider its motivation. What is providing its energy? Is this doubt springing perhaps from this incipient pride and arrogance that I am not going to obey until God comes down to my level? Or perhaps this is being motivated by the resistance to obey God's word, and so it's so very convenient simply to say, I don't know if that's what it says, so I will suspend my obedience. What is the motivation? Or is it a motivation that you know there is truth? It exists. God has determined it to be, and you are motivated to be a person of truth And so, this critical judgment is propelling you along in order to arrive at the truth and therefore glorify God in your submission to it. Now, as we close, I want to think of a few things that we can do in response to this. Number one, this teaching on doubt challenges us to doubt the right things. There is the need for critical thinking today, especially as we see our culture headed towards totalitarianism. Totalitarianism is, is, is a, a form of, of government, of, of social control, where that control, that authoritarianism, seeks to control every aspect of life, including our minds, We are living in an increasingly totalitarian society where big corporations, where the government, social media wants to control everything that we think. You know it's there. And so we need, as much as ever, critical thinking. We need to doubt the right things. The power of others to influence your thought is perhaps unmatched ever before, especially through media. It is a healthy skepticism to come to anyone who would seek a moment of our time through media, through social media, through the internet, through all these kinds of communications. It is incumbent upon us that we, as much as ever and more than ever, need to approach all of this with critical reasoning, critical discernment, judgment, an assumption of disbelief until it is taken and measured according to the truth of God's word. Number two, we must submit to the right authority. As I said, doubt looks for authority to either verify a truth claim or to deny, to invalidate a truth claim. And so as we go through these doubts, even 
doubts of our own salvation. We must look to the right authority. When we doubt, we look for the right authority and and, and for critical thinking to be healthy and helpful. It must appeal and embrace, it must appeal to and embrace the right authority, an unassailable authority that cannot be judged and questioned. And that authority is God's word. It is not intuition, it is not reason, feelings, traditions, or you name it. And so whatever we judge, Wherever there is lack of certainty, we must seek the right authority in order to make the right determination. Adoniram Judson was a 19th century missionary to Burma, Myanmar. And he had ministered there for quite some time, about two years, and still not one evidence of conversion among the native population Now, two years of dedicated ministry, day after day, hard work, not having any kind of of result or fruit to that is very discouraging. One day, as he was working with his language instructor, he was translating a portion of the scriptures. They had worked on the gospels for quite some time, and the language teacher, who who was, was not a Christian, he was a Hindi, he saw what, what, um, what, what was being translated and began to be interested in this person called Jesus. And at one point, the language teacher says to, to Adoniram Judson, I think I'm ready to become a Christian. Most of us would have jumped up and down for joy and baptized him on the spot, right? But Adoniram Judson was much wiser than that. He said, okay, let me ask you some questions. And he asked him a series of questions, and this teacher kept answering yes, 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 until he got to the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Do you believe, he asked, that God would punish his own son on your behalf? And this man answered and said, no, I don't. That is great injustice. The man was a rationalist. And Adoniram Judson responded to him with great words, which I think are some of the best that remind us of the right authority. He said this, quote, A true disciple inquires not whether a fact is agreeable to his own reason, but whether it is in the book. His pride has yielded to the divine testimony. Teacher, your pride is still unbroken. Break down your pride and yield to the word of God. We must look to the right authority. Number three, we must affirm the right faith. We must recover a truly biblical definition of faith. What is faith? We must recognize that often we, because we misdefine faith, we put ourselves into a wrong trajectory, and it is that which causes the doubt. But what is faith? Faith is the embrace of God's promises on the simple basis that He Himself has made the promise. Faith is not, is not expressed because there's some subjective verification. In fact, the very definition of faith is this, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith 
is when we realize that God's promise is true, not because my senses have told me that that promise is true, not because my intuition tells me that this is true, or my reason tells me it's true. No, true faith says I believe it because God said it. Think of Romans 4. Think of Abraham. And Abraham, he got the promise that he would have a son. He was, a, he was an old man, infertile. His wife was infertile. You look at that empirically, you look at that by intuition and reason, you'd say, there's no possibility. But Abraham is called the father of faith because he believed the promise because one reason and one reason alone, God said it. Charles Spurgeon said this, faith is not a blind thing. Faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. That's faith. And the greatest expression of faith is when you read God's promise of the gospel that he sent his son to die for your sin so that you can have eternal life. The promise that God has taken your sin and placed it upon Jesus, nailing it to the cross, every single one of those sins, they're nailed there, and then the righteousness of Jesus is given to you. All of his obedience is given to you so that now the Father the Father looks on you through that righteousness. That is what is promised in the gospel There's no amount of empiricism that can validate that. But we have a much greater testimony. God himself has said it so. Do you believe? Number four, appeal to the right help. Indeed, there are dark valleys that we go through when we doubt our own salvation. There are those moments when when we do lack certainty But remember, that kind of doubt can be a friend in that it propels you in the right direction. So address your struggle, your struggle with doubt to the only one who can give true certainty. Don't look to your senses. Don't look to some other human verification, to something material. You'll never find that verification that you're looking for. Instead, look for it where it can truly come from, and that is in God. Mark 9 has this wonderful situation, this story of a man who's got a a child who's demon-possessed. And he brings the child to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe Help my unbelief. Help my my unbelief. And that is what you pray in the moments of those dark valleys. I believe, and that is why I'm coming to you. I acknowledge that you're the only one that can give me certainty. You're the only one that can give my soul rest. And so I come to you. There is no rest found anywhere else. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Appeal to the right help. J.C. Ryle said this, Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help. Number five, provide the right ministry. 
those who struggle with certainty, uh, those who struggle with certainty, particularly as it relates to their own salvation, uh, can sometimes feel ostracism by mature Christians. Whether that ostracism is real or not, they feel they just don't have it. They don't have what it takes to run with the big dogs. They they doubt, and you look at these men of faith, and wow, they must have such certainty. I don't have that. They pull away. Well, we need to provide the right ministry to those in doubt. Now, we're not talking about those who say there's mistakes in the Bible and doubt the character of God. No, those need to be admonished and even to some degree separated because they're gangrene in the church. But those who doubt their own salvation, who question it, those need the right kind of ministry. Jude brings this out, Jude 20 to 23, where Jude writes, But you, beloved, build Building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Yeah, the the church is a place for those who recognize their insufficiencies. The church is a place for those who recognize their fallibility and if you know a brother who's struggling with this, the idea isn't just to smack him on the head and say, get with it. The idea is to have mercy, to come alongside that brother, to walk with him, to encourage him, to be the instrument of God in his life, to help him look to Christ. And in the end, we're all in the same boat. It's not our certainty that saves us. No matter how much we may think we're saved, that's not what saves us. It's not the power of our faith that saves us. It's not our own ability that saves us. It's only Christ. And thank God that it is He who saves us. And our salvation is in His hands. We sang the song at the very beginning. He will hold me fast. Let's just close by reading these words. The first stanza. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Father, we come before you thankful for this truth. We are pitiful people. Our hearts are so prone to wander. We look in all the wrong places for comfort and security. We treat your words so superficially. We buy into so much of the world's goods. And all of that then comes upon us with a mighty doubt. 
And yet you have given us a precious word that is far more secure and safe and true than anything that our reasoning could invent or our senses could feel or our intuition could sense. We thank you for that word, that promise. The promise in the gospel that it is Christ who saves, not our certainty. It is Christ who holds us fast, not our certainty. And even in the midst of dark, discouraging days, we can rest in that truth that no matter what is going on in me that I don't even understand, Christ is faithful and true. He will not be moved and he will bring us through to the end. He is our certainty. We confess that in simple faith. And we do so in his name. Amen.